This boy and girl are going to be well equipped when the time comes to take their places as worthy members of adult society. Aloha, y'all. This is Daniel Eisenman, the host of the Breaking Normal podcast, where my guests are all invited based on the frequency of synchronicity, all done in person, and all trailblazers and the breaking of all things normal. Aloha, y'all. Welcome to the, I think, 107th Breaking Normal podcast. I believe that's the number. Whoa, this is a special one. Um, and this is really special slash breaking normal times. And I trust in the best way. I'm out here in Georgia. Uh, one of the things I was doing was recording the video intro for the podcast you're about to listen to that you can check out on Instagram. Um, look for the title, Stop Victimizing Yourself to the USDA Bison versus Beef versus Buffalo. And um, I visited the farm here, and I explained the whole synchronicity, how I got there. And I had to warn them, I had to warn them that my dad had just tested positive for COVID. And they were experiencing symptoms, but I was not. And they sent me a really cool text message back about how they're not afraid of COVID. They work really hard on their immune system. Come on over. And plus, we were doing filming outdoors with camels and water buffalo and llamas and alpaca. And it was a beautiful interview. So the interview with the queen bee there, Shally, Shally Carroll, is on my Instagram. You can check that video out. Not if you're watching this on Instagram Live, by the way, right now. That'll be uploaded tomorrow. <laughs> um, and the podcast you're going to listen to is with Dave and Carol. And they are definitely breaking normal in so many of the best ways. And I'm really just getting started with them. Um, but for the COVID thing, I think it's a pretty big topic. And I want to see if I can get my dad or mom on the show next. Um, my dad, basically, he works with Walgreens. He's been a pharmacist for over 42 years. He's owned pharmacies, and his most recent joy of being of that job is working with Walgreens. And based on the information that he was having symptoms on, the, I think, the first day of the month, got tested positive, maybe on the third day of the month, um, and he's been symptom-free, like they haven't gotten any worse than they've just gone away. They're saying he can go back to work January 10th. So depending on how you look at this, like all the different quarantine protocols, and I know that brings up so much. It could bring up like the fear of the slow drip of communism that we might be facing in some ways. Or it could bring the fear of an infinite amount of other viruses of the mind. Um, but for me, I'm... I believe uh, the symptoms my parents are experiencing and being tested positive for COVID, I bet in December 2019, right around Christmas time, I would have been tested positive for COVID along with Davina. It just wasn't like a, um, a meme in the zeitgeist yet. And they, they definitely wasn't like test readily available like they are now. I think it, right now it's a very normal time to outsource our inner guidance system to others in white coats or on camera at the news channels. And that's, I would be very hesitant to do that right now. 
this is the time to turn our inner guidance to the highest, like I and I and I. And because if you look, if someone, for anyone that's been studying the news from the last year, there is so much contradictory, censored propaganda going left and right, right and left, up and down, all ways right now, seemingly the result being confusing the masses into a state of fear. And it's time we remember that <laughs> the real news is what's coming from the inside. And, then, and when we really focus on that, we can actually change the outside. And it's basically time to start breaking normal. And it's an honor to introduce David Carroll to the Breaking Normal podcast. And um, if anyone has any questions or concerns, you know, my dad actually took some unique new like anti-parasitic medicine that's found to have been very effective at preventing mortality and COVID. And there's just so many different theories out there right now. And I feel like I'm pretty well-versed in most of the ideas of them. Uh, but keeping like an open heart and a flexible mind and realizing that no matter what anyone tells me about me, there's something higher than that. And I can turn, I can tune into that channel and channel that frequency of synchronicity. And I think that's what we're doing with the Breaking Normal podcast. And I do think that the tribe vitamins I've been microdosing on, including many of the guests you've probably heard recently and or will listen to in the future have been there's something there there's something there about the power of consciously consuming the essence of such of the of the medicine the organ the organ powerhouse of that animal that is so resilient and so has so much endurance and can sort of thrive in the harshest and coldest of climates. And, and are in a state of heart sync instead of groupthink. Like consuming that kind of consciousness daily, I do think has been a major part of the Breaking Normal podcast and experience. And someone's just messaging me right, right, right now. I am drinking tonic water your dad drinks. Yeah, if you haven't listened to the previous podcast with my dad, like the best... Um, the hero's journey home and the good, the best news or the good news with my dad, like take a look through these previous episodes. But yeah, one of the protocols, my dad before he, like 10 months ago or whatever it was, he was prophylactically or, and AKA microdosing on tonic water because it had quinine in it. And since then, since that podcast, and this is an exciting reason to get my dad on here, we've actually found a supplements based on just straight cinchona bark which quinine is derived from. Now, is this possibly lessening the symptoms of my dad's COVID experience? Hmm. I mean, my sister and my dad have been taking the tribe vitamins and I've been watching them and they seem quite healthy to me. They did seem like they had a nasal experience. They seem like they were a little more up and down with their energy. But hey, I just recently listened to the book, The uh, Paleo Cardiologist, and he was making a strong argument how healthy it is to get sick every once in a while so that you might eat less and rest more. That's what it seems like they've been doing to me, eating less and resting more. And 
being tempted to concern with those outside influences and projections and placebos from the news that is manufactured from a place of intending on scaring people because they know they're more susceptible to viruses of the mind and or memes. If you, if you don't understand the science behind memes, aka the genes of our culture, um, check out the book Virus of the Mind and Breaking Normal and listen to what David has to say here. Because right now, a lot of people's diets are being um, constricted by the constraints in the box of the USDA. And it's time to break that normal. And that's one of the reasons I'm really excited to be offering tribe vitamins. And I'm really excited about what David and Shally are doing out here. So enjoy the podcast. Um, I did this live on Instagram, so I will field a few more uh, questions that are organically aligned to experience at this time. And I'm going to say... So long to y'all, and uh, it's time. It's go time, baby. <laughs> However you want to look at it. If you want to look at 2020 was different than 2021, like if you believe in time and space like that, then let's make sure that if you're experiencing it as a stumbling block, to look at it as a stepping stone now, and that what didn't kill you made you stronger, and that there is a reason you are here right now to thrive and live inside out and break normal and understand that there is a power to the herd, but not to be limited by it. <laughs> Keep breaking your Aloha, y'all. Wow, I'm really excited about this podcast. <laughs> I'm here with my new friend, uh, David Carroll from Carroll Farms in Georgia. I'm looking at a camel, uh, an alpaca, a llama, and a... Uh, a dog that just broke through the, <laughs> the door there. <laughs> and um, I'm here with David. And I wanted to share a little story. Based on my last podcast, um, we interviewed my, one of my roommates at what we call the Magic Mountain House up there in Golden, Colorado. And she's a hypnotherapist and a high-performance coach. And we kind of came up with this exercise where the four of us that were co-hosting the podcast would send each other voice notes every day for the next week of gratitude something that we're grateful for that's happening currently and something that we're grateful for that's coming in the future. And I'm just kind of mixing it up to trick our own minds into not knowing the difference. And it was really fun. It's been a really fun exercise. I definitely encourage y'all to check that episode out and start practicing it yourself because one of the things that I was thankful for was revolved around a partnership with uh, la uh, llamas and camels. <laughs> Interesting. And uh, I didn't know exactly why. I, I'm not going to go into the details, but that was one of the future remembering gratitudes. And that was about three days before I went to Oprah Robbie's in Georgia to get uh, some pet food. I put that in big quotes because it's raw milk, just unpasteurized right. milk, but they have to sell it for pet consumption, I guess, based on the Georgia laws around unpasteurized milk. Yep. And I asked them, I figured they would know a bison farmer because as many people know at this point, I'm doing a big project um, revolved around the new company I've cultivated called Tribe Vitamins. And the first uh, product of that brand will be desiccated bison liver from 100% grass-fed, grass-finished bison. There's a lot of people that are mixed up. I think a lot of people don't know the difference between buffalo or bison, and that's one right. of the topics I want to talk about. But they sent me to a bison farm, to your farm that I'm at, that doesn't have bison. Right. It actually has buffalo water farm. buffalo and camels and llamas. Right. And I find that very affirming. I've heard once that God keeps itself anonymous by speaking in synchronicity. 
So that's a there's one of the reasons that's a major part of this threat, this show, and I and you are a big symbol of that and what you're doing out here. And uh, for what are you doing out here? What's going on out here? Because this just is pretty crazy to just to look at a real job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell tell how did you get into this? I know you when we talked for the first time, you mentioned that you've been into farming for uh, for your whole life almost. Right, I started in the fifth grade when I realized I could get out of class uh, for raising chickens and pigs. I figured I'd go with it, and then it's uh, it's turned into a full blown thing. I've been farming all my life, pretty much so far. Well, you de- you definitely don't have a normal farming operation. Does it, I mean I was even asking you because one of the intentions with the tribe vitamins is to not only offer the bison liver eventually on Amazon for everybody, but also to have smaller batches that would never be scalable on something like Amazon. But we could offer them privately to like a membership a group and. Now I'm realizing, like, I want to do water buffalo liver, for instance. Sure. I want to see if we can get some water buffalo liver freeze-dried and encapsulated for those pioneers of this new brand. It's actually got twice the iron as beef. It has twice the iron twice as beef. Yeah. Wow, that's ridiculous. I wonder, do you know where bison falls into that? And why why, why these exotic animals? Why, why And why do you have bison well, or don't have bison? Uh, a couple of reasons. A couple of things led me into this. Uh one was uh, basically uh, everything I do here is outside of commodity agriculture. Uh, I feel that commodity agriculture uh, is the real villain and the reason why, as a population, we're the most overfed, undernourished in the world. And, so, and I want to—that's been a major theme. I've been studying like nutrition and well health and wellness for over a decade now, and to me, that is one of the major themes that I've come across in the United States: is that people are overfed and undernourished or undermineralized or un- they don't have they're like looking for like a vi- their body's looking for a specific vitamin or something like iron right. in the meantime they're eating boatloads of food that don't contain that and just yeah like you said overfed undernourished their body's starving for it it's looking for something it can't find yep. so um now you, you, the, why the, the camels the, why the llamas why the alpacas why well the- we we uh we started raising alpacas in 1991 we're actually the I guess we'd be the oldest alpaca herd in the southeastern United States. We got into them back when there was only 2,500 of them uh, in all of North America. Originally, we were looking uh, for good, strong breeder markets of livestock that uh, would provide a better margin or better return than commodity animals. And so uh, that kind of led to the alpacas and... uh, one thing led to another. We've had over 120 at one time before. We're down under 20 uh, at the moment. And uh, I've been shearing alpacas professionally since we purchased ours. And uh, we shear on about 120 farms over a six-week period uh, in two months in April and May each year. Okay, so you're, are you specifically doing alpacas and llamas for, you said shearing? Shearing for the hair, the haircut, like a sheep. Yeah, I mean. So they are a fiber animal. A lot of people uh, in this country don't realize that they're a major meat animal also. Uh, in the Andes, in Chile, Bolivia, and Peru, they're a major meat animal. In Australia, they're a major meat animal. Many other countries, they're a major meat animal. In this country, they were kind of promoted at one time as the huggable investment, so nobody really wanted to think about eating them. But if you are livestock, then uh, that's the, the reality of it. Yeah, I mean, when I, I spent about a month in Peru about seven years ago, and it almost seemed as 
I don't think it's a direct metaphor, but almost as like Americans eat bison, like, oh, right. this like indigenous awesome animal that's better than meat. I mean, better than beef. Yeah. Let me get some of my hands on that. Um, that almost how I felt was the alpaca in Peru. Like, if you wanted to go to a fancy steakhouse, they're going to have alpaca that's filet. Actually, that's, that's absolutely correct. Uh, in the nice restaurants, alpaca is uh, what they sell. Uh, they consider llama to be peasant food. Now, I've had them both. I couldn't tell the difference. I guess that's the peasant in me. But uh, I couldn't really tell the difference. They're very close to the same animal, but are two different species. Okay, and on that note of peasant food, and I've also heard, I've been around some camels. I love camels. I feel like camels are some of my favorite animals. I've heard that like a double back or a double hump or a triple hump uh, camel, like in certain areas of the Middle East and such, that would be a true sign of wealth. Like, oh, you're wealthy if you have a double hump camel. Well, we have, uh, we have the, uh, the Arabian camel or the dromedary camel has the one hump, and the Bactrian camel has two humps, and they actually came from different parts of the world. And so uh, uh, you would have been very wealthy if you had a, a Bactrian camel, I guess, in the land of the dromedary. Okay. Because it didn't come from there. And what kind so, do you have here? Uh, I have the dromedaries. Okay. A quick story about uh, camels. They, they, the camels, uh, are, as an animal, as a species, uh-oh, we had a dog run through. Uh, hold on one second. As a, so there we go. Uh, we got a story about a camel All as right, an birds, animal and away. as a species. <laughs> okay, no, no. All right. So camels actually uh, came to be in North America. Uh, camels are a North American animal uh, many millions of years ago. Uh, at one point, some camels migrated across the land bridge into uh, Eurasia, basically, and became the old world camels, the dromedary with one hump and the Bactrian with two humps. So they traveled so, from the North American lands to right, right. Eurasia? Right, still the land bridge. Wow. And then uh, some of the camelids traveled south and ended up in South America. And uh, then they went extinct in North America. But the ones in South America uh, were the Guanaco and the Vicuña, which are still wild animals today. Uh, from the Guanaco and the Vicuña, the llama and the alpaca were bred. So the llama and alpaca are domestic species of livestock. They were created by man, so you'll never see a, there's no such thing as a wild alpaca or a wild llama. Okay, that's yeah. good. That's interesting to know. I'm wondering, oh, he's eating much. He's trying to eat my tribe vitamins. Most dogs <laughs> cannot stay away from that. Those dogs are all fed, so they eat very good. Yeah. Oh, I bet they do. <laughs> um, so what's the intention of having the camels out here? Well, the camels came about when uh, uh, we sold a herd of buffalo to a dairy in Colorado uh, to milk. And the dairy is an existing camel dairy. And so... Uh, I'd always been interested in camels, but uh, never really could figure out a good reason to have one. And so these were some young female uh, heifers that we bought uh, after we sold the buffaloes to them to raise back with the intent of selling them back to the dairy uh, when they were five or six years old and bred for their first time and uh, ready to go back into dairy and go into milk production. So those are a breeding pair here, basically? Well, these are, those are all females. Those are all females. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you're yeah. going to get them. The, the idea was to basically, and maybe still is, to keep raising them until they're ready to be milked. Right. Now the wife says she's going to keep them. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand that. That's probably a pretty yeah, they, common story. Not with camels. Probably right. more like other animals. Right. But. Yeah. 
they uh they don't breed until they're about uh three or four or five years old actually four or five then they have a 13 and a half month gestation so before they uh go into dairy production they'd be five or six years old they use a an old world dairy model with them where they leave the calf on the mother and then they separate the calf at night they keep the calf in the barn and then the camel cow comes in in the morning and gets milked and then she gets turned out with her calf so she still raises her calf uh, naturally uh, with camel milk and uh, as opposed to more of the american european commodity dairy model of taking the calf away and uh, raise the calf on fake milk and antibiotics so that we can get twice the amount of milk at half the quality. Yeah, that's a major issue. And I, I, I imagine that, that this commodity farming that you're alluding to, we're going to really uh, dissect that as I go through these other questions. It seems like it's going to be organically coming up, and that's crazy to think about. I'm, I'm imagining not all uh, cow dairies do that. There's probably some that are... Or what's the uh, well, story? Well, that's what you, we see that, uh, that that model is used uh, across a lot of the world. Uh, uh, the Maasai in Africa uh, do that with their calves. They put their calves in their huts at night, and the cows wait outside for them in the morning, and then they milk the cows and then turn the calves out. Uh, all across India, where there's more water buffaloes milk than cattle, uh, they'll keep the calf with them and pull the calf away when they don't want the milk. Instead of separating them, for they good. do want them. Yeah, and I'm, yeah. my imagination is that for the normal dairy cow farmers that are taking the babies away for good, right, and then feeding these babies, are, are, are some of those babies eventually going to be? Aren't they going to be used for meat and or milk purposes? Well, well, nothing's really wasted. I mean, you know, the the males will all end up for meat typically. Uh, the females will will probably be used for milk. Uh, a lot of them will go into, well, all of them will eventually go into the meat. And what I'm getting at, though, is that I have, my understanding is really what c creates like the genetic, I mean, the uh, immunity blueprint for a human baby, for instance, right. is the ability to be with his mother and drink the milk from the mother. And right. uh, I've heard of there's a scary correlation with certain types of diabetes and being fed pasteurized cow milk or um, baby formula instead of mother's milk. Right. So I'm just thinking like for the well-being of that future milk and or meat producer, how much of an issue is that potentially causing for that cow's health to oh, be it's, stripped it's, away from its, it's mother life, like that? It's life or death. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I mean, I've, I've never dairied, and so I don't really want to speak for, you know, how a, how a dairy is run or anything. I know as a, uh, a holistic livestock producer that strives to produce animals free of antibiotics chemicals or really any outside resources like that uh, you want to start with a healthy animal and so uh, colostrum from the mother is very important also uh, uh, a lot of uh, what they grow what they what they eat what they graze how they graze their work ethic a lot of that stuff comes to them from their mother and that, that's very important on an animal that I want to uh, provide for a species-appropriate lifestyle, that's the only way to start them. I can't take a, an animal from a conventional farm and then raise him organically because he doesn't have those kind of resistance to parasites and those type of things. We want, we want them clean from 
before they hit the ground. Wow. So it sounds like there's a real system that deserves to be broken and reassembled with this commodity farming. I'm watching the water buffalo uh, come in right now. Yeah. What, how beautiful is that? Uh, real quickly, uh, uh, about the camel milk before I, I want to make sure I remember. What's so unique? Is there, isn't there some unique property so camel to camel milk? milk? Camel milk has uh, the highest insulin level of any milk. Uh, a lot of diabetics use it to stabilize their blood sugar. Uh, it has quite a following with uh, autistic caregivers that find a lot of uh, healing uh, for the gut, for uh, the people that they're taking care of. Um, a lot of people use it as a tonic. There's also a, a large ethnic population in the U.S. now that like camel milk. Camel milk, they say, is the most complete milk, second only to donkey milk. And uh, there are some donkey dairies, believe it or not, in the U.S. now. Yeah, that's what I'm looking to do. I'm looking to get in touch with these camel and donkey dairies. And maybe if there's a way, if they even do the colostrum um, available for buy, to supply to basically buy them, freeze-dry them, and encapsulate them as a yeah. supplement as well, one of those small batch items. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the water buffalo. I mean, these things are just epically beautiful. I've seen it. We, we have the skulls, three skulls right behind us uh, for this video if you're watching that. And these other ones are just, man, walking in like beautiful beasts. These are some yearling and two-year-old bulls uh, that are right here. These are the closest ones to harvest, and they get the very best grass that we can provide them. Uh, They're our guests of honor. And so uh, we want to make sure they've got everything they need. We have uh, a herd of breeding cows and a bull across the road and another herd that's about 12 miles from here. Uh, They're all calving now because they, uh, they calve in the fall and the winter like that. But they can run on a lower nutritional profile. Uh, mostly, you know, the, the important thing they need is the protein to grow. Until they have done their complete physical growth, then we want to provide more uh, a higher energy food, like uh, the legumes, uh, to put the fat on the animals to finish them for harvest like that. So these guys are up here. Uh, because there's a lot of clover in this grass, and it's a much higher energy level than, well, the most that we can provide them right now. And um, I did, for anyone that doesn't know, last time I was here, the first time I was here, I um, got a bunch of different products. I got uh, buffalo. One of the things I got was buffalo milk. I got buffalo testicles. I got camel (laughs) milk. I got buffalo heart. Yeah. I even got a blend if I'm of ground buffalo with I think pancreas kidneys it has, and uh, kidney liver and spleen in there. Kidney yeah. liver and spleen. Wow. Yeah. Um, so I tried a lot of these and they're all amazing. Uh, however, I brought them to my family and the favorite seemed to be the testicle. Yeah. <laughs> and it's surprisingly uh, the, good. It's the buffalo milk. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And my brother Nathaniel, who said the buffalo milk was probably his favorite. We, at one point, we practiced a raw vegan diet where we only ate fruits, vegetables, nuts, and all in the raw form for yeah. about seven months or so. And my youngest brother simultaneously was becoming one of the fastest swimmers in the country, so much so that he had to start eating other things. Right. And he, uh, what he ended up doing, long story short, he ended up drinking six gallons of raw milk a week. Yeah. And put on pretty much a, like a pound of muscle a day until he got to like 50 <laughs> pounds and more of muscle. Yeah. So, um, and then when he tried this milk, he was like, wow, that's, re-. he loved it. And we all noticed how much creamier. It's almost like an ice cream right, in a way. Right. So, what's going on with if this had, buffalo if milk? If he had buffalo milk, then we just buttered him right on up. You know, <laughs> it, it's actually twice the butterfat content 
of cow milk. So twice the iron in the liver, twice the cow, uh, the buttermilk fat in the yeah. milk. Yeah. What's going on with these animals well, compared to cows? Well, with the with the higher uh, with the higher milk fat, the butter fat content, it yields it's a it yields more cheese. It's very preferred by a lot of the cheese makers because of the high yields and everything. But we see a, a different as far as how they are, they are different from cattle. We see a different nutritional profile because. Uh, I've come to learn that the, the buffalo gut is very different from a cow gut. Um, first of all, they are very heavy salivators. And second of all, they have a much slower gut than a cow. And so uh, that allows them to, to digest and thrive on uh, lots more coarser forages than a cow would prefer or would thrive on. So that's interesting. Um, and you mentioned as well, like where do these, bu this, I want to talk about the difference between what a buffalo and a bison is, but before we do, the specific water buffalo that you have here, yep. where are these from originally? And you mentioned that last time you were telling me about a story about the, your customer base here in Georgia of yep. being from a unique lineage in Asia. Yep. I would like to hear a little bit about okay. that story okay. if possible. Well, the ones we're looking at specifically came from uh, just across the road, but going all the way back to the beginning, uh, of my herd, a lot of those came from uh, uh, Florida at the time, and, and I guess it was about it was in 2000 when I bought my first water buffaloes, and a lot of them came from uh, uh, different small breeders in the southeast. And so, originally, how did they get to it? Because they're not from uh, the North America originally, are they? Right. All all the water buffalo genetics in this country are pre 1977. They haven't imported any more livestock live buffalo stock. Uh, since then, because of the, the hoof and mouth disease regulations and that kind of thing, uh, over the years, on and off, more recently, they have allowed the importation of semen from Italy from improved dairy bloodlines there. But everything in this country is uh, kind of crossed up between the two different species of water buffalo. They originally brought here uh, into Florida uh, by Hugh Pompano, who uh, was doing research at one of the colleges down there uh, with tropical grasses and a way to control and improve tropical grasses that kind of intertwined it with that program. And they um, originally are found in Southeast Asia or where in Asia or where all, like, do you know the lineage well, of Well, the, uh, the, the Asiatic water buffalo is from uh, Southeast Asia, Asia, and uh, it is the one that you see like plowing the rice paddies and everything. And it, they have very distinct, uh, really horns that are flat across the front and sweep really wide. And uh, then you have the riverine buffalo, which is more across like India and that area there, uh, all across into Eastern Europe. And that is more of a dairy type buffalo. They have uh, horns that curl out and curl forward. And they're generally uh, more solid black in color. One is, uh, they are a separate species. One is 48 chromosomes and uh, one is 50, but they do cross and their offspring are fertile. Okay. This so is... that's unusual for a hybrid. but uh... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's another whole conversation. All right. So, yeah. and then you were mentioning that you have some people from Asian descent that um, uh, the Hmong people? The Hmong, yeah. Are these like, uh, a, I would like people to understand the story of yeah. how they like to get the animal. Oh, the Hmong. And why is that? We, yeah. Uh, most of our buffalo now we, we haul to a USDA plant and we have them uh, cut, processed in a very traditional way, like any of the, 
the different cuts you would find in beef. Uh, we, we do those in Buffalo. We do sell some animals off the farm uh, for people that want to process them themselves. We have a, a large mung population in the area, and uh, they purchase a lot of them uh, for funerals and weddings and celebrations like that. And who are, you explained this a little bit last time, but who are the Hmong people? The Hmong, and that's spelled H-M-O-N-G, were an ethnic group that came from the area of China uh, into Laos uh, about 500 or so years ago. Uh, they ended up settling in the mountains of Laos, while the Laotians didn't go because that's where the spirits live. And over time, uh, they were discovered and recruited by uh, the CIA to guard our non-existent mountaintop radar installations in Laos and to retrieve our downed fighter pilots in Vietnam. They proved to be uh, extremely loyal, uh, became fierce fighters. Some of them accomplished fighter pilots even, even though they didn't have a written language uh, less than 100 years ago. But when the U.S. pulled out, uh, the North Vietnamese started ethnically cleansing the country, and uh, that included the Hmong, the Hmong who had helped us here. And so many of them were able to escape uh, into Thailand across the Mekong River and eventually achieve political asylum here in the U.S. And now, um, so they so happened, uh, there's, it sounds like there's a history with them in the water buffalo, and on these special occasions, they want to get one from you. And right. It seems like they do things different than like the normal butcher shop in Georgia. Right. If we haul an animal uh, to a packing house here, the first thing the government inspector has us do is discard uh, over fifty percent of the animal. Uh, they say it's not for human fit for human consumption. Things like the head, uh, the hide, the feet, cer certain organs, and things like that. Uh, we're regulated in such a way that that we can't utilize those. But uh, yeah, what happens to those? Oh, uh, they get green stuff poured over them, which they couldn't identify to me, but I came to find out was a citronella oil. So they denature it, uh, turning it green with this dye, so it doesn't end back up in human, uh, in hu for human consumption. Although then we boil it all down and feed it all to our pets. Well, I say we. <laughs> Some people uh, feed kibble, and uh, and all that stuff has had the citronella oil poured, poured all over it like that. But a century, I wonder so what, what's I, the story with this. We, we, when we kill the buffaloes, uh, they're shot in the head, so they do have to condemn the heads because uh, we, we couldn't put them into the food trade because they, the possibility of lead. Okay. Okay. But they would not let me keep the heads. Uh, and you can see right there, I, I have a lot of respect for some of these animals. I mean, that, that girl right there is over 25 years old. Oh. And so. Uh, but, but anyway, I have a, a, a market for the heads, and we want to use every single bit of that animal we can. And so uh, after uh, much insistence, they finally provided me with an affidavit that I could sign that said that they were for uh, taxidermy and educational purposes, and I can keep those. Oh, nice. Yeah. But other parts uh, I cannot keep, even though I uh, have a, a dog food company that freeze-dries natural, healthy dog treats and they would buy them from me the government won't let me get them uh without pouring uh, the citronella oil all over them mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so 
That's interesting. So what did these guys do? These okay, monk well, people the monk, do it's back different. To the monk. <laughs> well, if you if you want the details, uh, we harvest the animal, bring it out with a tractor, and uh, uh, they collect all the blood, use all the blood. They take the hide and uh, will eat every. They basically eat every single bit of that animal. They they can process an animal in a couple hours' time, and it's packed up in coolers and pickup trucks, and uh, uh, it's gone to the to the the celebration. Or sometimes I'll take a, a live one there if they're very local. And uh, they'll spend time with it and tell its stories and uh, for, take back to the ancestors and then have a barbecue, basically. Yeah, wow. And then I think you mentioned like that there's a, maybe even a process for picking out the animal sometimes with uh, the grandmother and such. Yeah, a lot of times uh, they'll come out you know, midweek and, and pick out a particular animal. But the deal's never really final until, you know, grandmother sees it and approves. Oftentimes, uh, when they pick it out, they're not picking it out. Oftentimes, uh, uh, an animal picks them. And, and how would you, what do you mean by that? Could you describe that a little bit more? What they mean? What you think they mean by that? Well, or what we, do you mean by that? We walk, out, we walk out in the field sometimes, and there's, you know, uh, there's those 15 animals right there. And uh, maybe it's the smallest one in the group. And it steps up and walks up to them, and they say, okay, well, we'll take you then. And wh what is your belief around that? You know, you mentioned that this skull here is from a 20-plus-old female yeah, that you yeah, had. Yep. What do you believe about that? I believe that, uh, that they want to be the chosen one. It's an honor. And I believe they know they can go back and get in line. And uh, I hope they believe, I hope they hope that they come back here. <laughs> as, as a water buffalo or as a Hell yeah come back again man. <laughs> as a water you know, buffalo that was a blast <laughs> i mean if you just showed up somewhere and you had everything you needed you know why would you ever leave wouldn't you want to go back mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> well now now that we're on that what's the difference what's going I must, on with i will add uh, humane harvest is very important to us and, uh, and, and, and the 100 percent grass slash it sounds like you supplement with other things than grain well, we don't feed any grain at all. Uh, we're a hundred percent species appropriate diet for any of the animals that we raise. So, if we were feeding chickens, we might would feed some grain. If we were doing hogs, we we might would feed some grain. But with ruminant animals, uh, they are created to eat forages, and so that's grasses, legumes, forbs, things like that. It's yeah, so that this is where an interesting part of my life comes in is because I've been literally scouting out all the bison suppliers that could actually help me out with this project that are right. seemingly all in America. Um, I don't know, maybe there's American bison farmers outside of America. I'm not sure about shipping and customs and stuff like that. But long story short, 90 plus percent of them finish them on grain right. in America, these ranchers. Right. And they have really... Logic, like if you listen, when I listen to them, I'm like, oh, if I didn't know any, 90, if I if I didn't talk to those other five percent of people, I I would believe what you're telling me. Right. Ninety percent of them out there were, uh, were probably you know struggling cattlemen to begin with, and they couldn't make any money in the cattle business, and so they got into the bison business to make money, but then they raised bison the same way they raised the cattle. <laughs> yeah, and, and how does that connected to the confusion of the word buffalo versus bison? And do you think okay. there's any correlation with that? Oh, uh, well, there there's a lot of confusion, and and people were really in this country just figuring out that the American bison uh, is not called buffalo, uh, and then we showed up and uh, we started talking about buffalo, 
And it's funny how oftentimes people want to try to correct us and, oh, no, you mean bison? And I'm like, no, we mean buffalo. But uh, the American bison is a North American species of livestock that actually looks less like a cow than a water buffalo does, but is more closely related to a cow. They're all bovidae's. And so uh, bison and cattle both have uh, horns that are round in cross-section. And so bison and cattle will cross and have a viable offspring. Uh, true buffaloes or bovidae's, their horns are actually triangular in cross-section. See that triangle right there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, wow. they, uh, they won't cross with the bison or with the cow. They are bovidae's, but on the other end of that bovidae spectrum and are more closely related to uh, like antelope which are boba days also. This is such a fascinating topic. Like, so bison and cows, is, that, is this the terminology beefalo? Like I've heard of beefalo. Uh, beefalo is, is a very specific cross of bison and cow. And so that is a, a cross that is five-eighths cow and three-eighths bison. So you kind of got to go around the corner to get that. You don't get it in the first cross. It takes two generations. and well, wow. actually, Yeah. So, all right, and so you mentioned that these uh, camels, for instance, went across the uh, land bridge to Euro-Asia from the Americas. Uh, my understanding is potentially originally bison came from Euro-Asia to Americas before the Ice Age or well, stuff like this. Had, I don't know. You might know bison, more than I do. We had bison here also. There is uh, also a European bison. Uh, and so uh, we had prehistoric bison on, on both continents so they were probably already there when those continents split, possibly. Uh, the horse is another species that originated in North America and then went extinct in North America uh, because we probably had uh, the first hunters, yeah, possibly, uh, or the best hunters, or the best eyesight, or the best tool-making skills. But anyway, uh, or maybe that's where the big rocks hit. <laughs> mm. But anyway, uh, they went extinct here. My, I mean, my understanding of that has something to do with the Europeans coming on this land and seeing these Geronimos that can kill bison through an arrow through the heart on a bareback horse and then somehow creating a ploy for them to... Well, yeah, that, that came much, much, much later. So, like, when the bison that we lost out on were prehistoric bison, you know, that were really, really, really huge. Okay. And the horses uh, that we lost out on uh, that went extinct here were actually really, really, really small. The, the very first horses were uh, not even knee high Whoa. and looked nothing like a horse. And then so they evolved and then uh, went extinct here and were brought back by Europeans. But Yeah, something went on uh, back prehistorically that uh, took out a lot of the big stuff here on this continent. And then, and then this is where I think around, if I'm not mistaken, my timelines might be off, maybe you can help me here, but potentially in the 1700s or the 1800s when Europeans were first arriving here, that there were about 40 million bison. Bison, yes. The bison uh, uh, basically covered the whole continent. They, we had bison here in the southeastern U.S. at that time. Uh, uh, very few deer, from what I, from what I understand, uh, because the deer have really prospered from our, our open grasslands and things that we have now. But the, uh, yeah. They were the major meat source of the people that we declared enemy. And so we wiped them out uh, in, in order to uh, defeat our enemy. Uh, in South America, 
uh, huge populations were based on the llama and the alpaca and the wealth that they provided because you didn't have a lot of protein options in uh, areas where they were. Uh, so the same thing went on down there at the same time that uh, we, I'm saying, uh, by, uh, we, we Europeans, uh, wiping out the bison here. They were also doing everything they they could to wipe out the llama and the alpaca uh, and the people that knew how to raise them in South America. Those people were uh, the backbones of that society. And so uh, uh, the conquistadors did everything they could to wipe them out and wipe out the animals and wipe out the people that knew how to raise them so that the European um, species <laughs> could be left there. Uh, and so that's why the llama and the alpaca are today are thought of as uh, a high-altitude animal. They used to exist all the way down to sea level, but they were wiped out by Europeans, and the only way they survived is that they were able to go higher and higher and higher up into the Andes until the conquistadors lost interest. Um, another interesting tidbit there. Uh, the reason that they were able to survive higher in the Andes at, high, well, at higher elevations, period, is because they had elliptical red blood cells. The camelids have elliptical red blood cells, so they're much more efficient at carrying oxygen. So they were able to survive at the mountaintops where the sheep couldn't go, and so the conquistadors only wanted to spread their colonial uh, colonialism as high as the sheep could go. Uh, so there is more of a <laughs> correlation with llama, alpaca, and bison than I thought. Yeah, actually. sure. There's, yeah. They seem like they have a similar story in a way. Yeah. Now, one thing that I know, the bison um, versus the cow, let's see, and you mentioned, I, I mean, I want, I'm aiming to understand some sort of golden thread between this commodity farming of cows, pigs, chickens, and whatever, right. and, and the normal, the normal right. USDA-inspected animals, versus, like, why people think bison are called buffalo, why people don't know this story, why people are only drinking cow's milk when there's stuff out there, like camel milk. Do you have uh, something that's coming up around maybe connecting these dots? Well, uh, I think it all started out as just a European notion. I think it was, like, manifest destiny or something like that, maybe. Uh that uh, gave people the thought that, uh, you know, this cow is better than a bison. And better because it's easier to control for one thing, right? Uh, like, I think, I feel like fence, I feel like fences have something to do with well, this. I, I don't, I don't know if the early, <laughs> if the early cows were really pushovers, you know, it took years and, you know, thousands of years of domestication to, you know, to really bring them and, you know, to handleable, handleable that way. Um, the bison, probably could have been domesticated uh they are certainly seem more domestic now than they used to and you know be as far as being raised in small pens and that type of thing uh you know now that this man is making the selections instead of nature for most of them and um the finishing on the grain finishing bison on grain because the potentially right. 90 plus percent of farmers are doing that and maybe you mentioned right. well 90 plus percent of those might have been Struggling money cow the farmers. Feed, right, they're losing money in, in, in the cow business because they're feeding grain. Even though the government raises us up from our first 4-H and FFA projects to use that government corn, you know, because they can provide corn cheaper than we can grow corn. So it only makes sense to feed it to all these animals. But when we change 
what we feed that animal, when we change that animal's diet, uh, we change that animal chemically to the point that it changes us chemically. And so we take a lot of the benefits uh, from eating meat from ruminant animals, uh, the high omega-3s, the CLAs, conjugated linoleic acid, which actually uh, is a, a amino acid that helps the body digest red meat. Uh, a lot of the fat-soluble vitamins, all of those things that come from that ruminant uh, are lost when we start feeding corn. Corn is the highest form of energy that we can put in an animal. And so we can only put so much of something in an animal. So if you're trying to do it quick and trying to do it cheap, uh, it does make sense to stuff them full of corn. Yeah, and... So, like there's this argument that I've heard from these bison farmers that they really like have this reason for finishing them nine, like the last 90 days on grain. Um, I'm hearing between the lines to make the steaks more marbled and sexier, but I'm wondering, is yeah. it literally an inflammation response? Are these animals having a, like a sick inflammation response and that's the meat people want? They, uh, these farmers think? You know, that could very, very well be. That's interesting. That, uh, that could be very well uh, the case right there. I think a lot of them uh, just hadn't thunk it out that far, you know. That's just, uh, you know, daddy raised them in the feedlot when they were in the cow business, and granddaddy raised them in the feedlot. Uh, you know, there's a lot of pressure to uh, stay inside of that uh, commodity framework uh, directly from the government, uh, from banking and, and the other people that don't really understand farming. Well, part of my intention with the Tribe Vitamins Project here is to bring awareness to these animals that are already going to be killed for their right. meat. Um, I, partly, I, I do believe like there's this thing that the bison want to roam free and they're calling me. That's why I would think I was asking yeah. like these esoteric ideas around the buffalo and you and these people oh, yeah. if you had a similar thing around that. But um, I want to create an economic tie to the byproducts, such as the right. liver, and like, look, Look, there's hundreds of thousands of people that want to eat this liver not on grain. Can we just right. not take them to this right. feedlot and stress them out for these right. and, if, and flame if, them for these last 90 days? Can we do that? If, you, if you're going to eat organs as you should, uh, you definitely want to eat grass-fed. Yeah. When, uh, when we sell our liver at the farmer's markets, we tell our customers that that's the laziest liver you'll ever find. You know, because mm. that liver right there, uh, that's coming off of our farm, I can tell you has never worked a day in its life. Hmm. If our liver is there to take toxins out of the blood, then that is one lazy liver. It's never worked a day. You know, it just hadn't seen them. You know, I have seen like when we, uh, you know how you take like a fresh farm egg, you know, and you crack it and it sits up really high and that, that yolk is that bright orange color. You your, take one, your beard is awesome. I wonder if you can push it off a little bit. Which is, yeah, which right, there, yeah, there, right, right there. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I'm just getting, getting a little scratchy. Yeah. I'll tell you what, my nails, <laughs> my nails and hair feel like they've been growing absurdly fast since I've been taking those supplements, by yeah. the way. But yeah. go ahead if you yeah, remember where you're at. The, uh, where were we on that? <laughs> I think you were talking about the laziest liver of the all time. The laziest liver, yeah. Um, they just, we, you know, that we, we don't have to use uh, the antibiotics on them we don't use any vaccines or anything like that these are like you know just totally um wild animals you know so we were making the comparison to the eggs like a farm egg that sits up really high with that really bright orange yolk compared to 
uh, one of these grocery store eggs that's been put back in the carton two or three times maybe before it got selected. And uh, you crack it, and it just goes flat on the plate and, or in the frying pan. And you, uh, and you uh, it, it's like a pale yellow, you know. And so uh, I've seen these, some of these livers at the packing house that coming out of some of these, these cattle that are being processed, when I see my livers and these my livers on these buffaloes are sitting up like really high, you know, hmm. tall and proud, and they've got like a deep purple color to them. And then you see some of these other livers that are coming through on animals, and they they just fall out flat. You know, they're almost more yellow hmm. than purple, uh, not consistent in color, wow. you know, that kind of thing. So uh, I think with organs, it's really pop, uh, really important that you uh, you try to eat grass fed. Yeah, well, I'm I'm super uh, thankful for what you're doing because it is the not it's not normal it's breaking normal kind of agriculture in a way and yes. uh, and I do so thankful for the bison suppliers that are deciding to let their bison roam free all the way because without right. that I would not even have this project going right and there's only a few of them compared right. to the every most of them <laughs> so and, the the reason that we got off of grass fed to begin with because that's what it was all about that's why. A man chose these animals for domestication uh, was because they could take resources that we couldn't utilize and turn them into resources that we can utilize. The original plant-based meat. It became, uh, uh, it takes a lot of talent to, like say my, what I'm trying to do for my animals is to provide a year-round forage chain where I have green forage in front of them 12 months out of the year. There's all kinds of reasons uh, that that's not easy to do. One is we've got four very different seasons here in the southeast. Uh, and so uh, it's a lot easier with corn because you can, you can get corn 365 days of the year. You don't have to have any grazing skills or even land because you could stand them right here. We could put, you know, 60 on this front porch and just – bring the corn to them every day and hose the crap out from under them, you know, and, and we could put a lot of animals right here, but we can't grow enough grass right here for one animal <laughs> for year round, you know? So, so we went uh, in response to the, the green revolution and producing a surplus of grains with ammonium nitrate that was left over from the war that was reasonably cre originally created as an explosive. We learned to use it as a fertilizer, man was. That ended up producing an abundance of grains that we didn't know what to do with. So then we learned to feed them to our cattle. We were told we can do it faster, we can do it cheaper, you know, all that kind of stuff. But um, that's where it all went wrong. You know, that, and that was, has been less than 100 years ago in this country. Well, it's probably also fascinating to find the correlations between them when that started and then when certain uh, prognosis exactly. diseases, diseases Our grandparents, right. all of a sudden started popping up like right. crazy. They were telling, you know, I, I remember when uh, uh, the Western Sizzling was a big fancy thing, you know, and you'd see the commercials on TV and it said, uh, you know, corn-fed steaks, corn-fed steaks. That's what they were advertising, you know, this, uh, so, as, this as, as if it was kind of new. My grandparents were the, the first uh, in my line that I'm aware of that really started having the kind of heart issues and everything. My parents especially, uh, in general, that the 
those generations are where the heart disease, when they started telling people, you got to stop eating beef, you got to stop eating beef. That wasn't because the beef was bad for people. It's because the beef had changed right in front of them. And so we had gone from grass-fed, where it's healthy, where it's heart-healthy, and gone to grain-fed, where it's uh, one of the worst things. Well, I wouldn't say one of the worst things, but it's not a good thing for the heart, the arteries. Yeah, I find it fascinating this correlation with the byproducts of a war being used that created maybe more war and just war, war, war within the yeah, individuals. Yeah, exactly. Internalized. This. Man, that's so crazy yeah. to think about. And then, um, hmm. what, what a lot of that boils down to is that uh, ruminants on a grass-fed diet are on a chlorophyll-based diet. And then when we take ruminants and instead feed them grain uh, for economic reasons and convenience, uh, we switch them over to a keratin based diet and so our grain our, our our chlorophyll based diet is very high in omega-3s and the omega-3s are very important to us because they give pliability to our cell walls the keratin based diets are very high in omega-6s and omega-6s are also very important to us because they give rigidity to our cell walls and we need more sixes than threes but what happens is when we lose the diet, when we lose all the threes from our diet, uh, we lose that pliability and our cells become very rigid. And all right, and to make it this even, you mentioned this all happened in the last hundred years or so. What about the glyphosate? What do you think about all that with Roundup, Ready Roundup? Uh, that's a disaster. <laughs> that's a disaster. I don't have any weed problems out here. You know, if you have a weed problem, it's a management problem, you know. Uh, we have large ruminants here. We've got small ruminants here. We've got monogastrics here. We graze, you know, many different species of animals. If somebody doesn't eat that, then somebody else does. So, if, you know, while that water buffalo is up there eating, there's a sheep standing right beside him going, hey, you going to eat that? You know, because they eat totally different things like that. And so when you combine the species like that, you get a more uniform uh, harvest of your forages, and you bring all the benefits of all the animals back to those forages like that. And I think as another example of this like systematic issue with the farming culture of America currently that seems like you're breaking once again, thank you. You mentioned this idea about one of the local colleges suggesting how do you get more bang for your buck with your meat. <laughs> are, are you able to talk about that? Because I, I don't know if many people under, know a thing yeah, about well, that. Yeah, well... We went to uh, our local well-known land-grant college uh, seeking nutritional information uh, on the water buffalo to put on our labels. My understanding that the land-grant colleges are there uh, to do that kind of research for us. They've certainly done it, uh, provided it for all the commodity meats. Uh, the guy there was really uh, interested in what we were doing. Uh, really excited, became uh, really, really more and more excited about all this money we were going to make together. And so uh, we agreed to talk a little bit later. He called me back 30 minutes later. We must talk sooner. Uh, so we changed the schedule and went down there. And uh, after visiting for a while and showing him some of my products uh, that, that he seemed to, he was really, really pleased with, 
he went back to how we're going to make so much money together. And so I asked him, well, how is that? And he said, well, for 75 cents, he says, well, I will teach you. For 75 cents, you can buy enough phosphate to add to 500 gallons of water. And I will teach you how to enhance your product by up to 10% of its weight. And then he said, you don't even have to put it on the label. <laughs> and so uh, the wife and I kind of went uh, back to back and started trying to ease and back out the door again, you know. And then uh, it just reminded me why I spent the last 25 years uneducating myself from what those guys did to me. <laughs> wow, wow. So yeah. this, that's and meaning that if you feed the buffalo phosphate water, well, no, I, you inject the meat directly. Oh, oh, that's even yeah, right. That's, that's so even I, so I, I can take the grass-fed, chemical-free meat that I have produced, and I can, if I have a uh, hundred pounds of meat, I can add ten pounds of phosphate water. So that would be a gallon and a little more of water to that meat, and. Uh, not have to tell anybody so you know we sell buffalo ground for ten dollars a pound down at the market i mean geez that adds up pretty quick real yeah. quick so that and um it literally cost 75 cents what, 75 cents he said enough for 75 <laughs> cents we can buy enough phosphate to treat 500 gallons of water so that's uh, like in the best 75 cents and make five grand uh, okay so that's the cost of the the grad student I was going to have to pay for. <laughs> and then um, how common is that? You mentioned that, you know, you don't uh, have to have well, it on labels. I, mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, yeah. Walmarts are everywhere. <laughs> well, Basically, you, I, most, of your commodity, most of your commodity meats uh, that are processed in the big plants like that, even ground, even sausages and things. What about like the uh, grass-finished beef? Is that possibly injected, uh, you know? It could be, it could be, you know, uh, the thing is, if, if you ask Hormel or, you know, Oscar Meyer or one of the big processors there, say, hey, uh, you know, do you enhance your meat with uh, phosphate water? They can, they can legally tell you no because they're not legally required to tell you yes. So if you buy as long a turkey, as it's under, 10%. under 10%. So if you buy a turkey or a baking hen, in the grocery store, and it says enhanced on there, enhanced with phosphate. Uh, that means it has more than 10% of its original. Wow. That's, yeah. uh, that's just another example of some, the yeah. wildness of lot, normal. Most of these grass-fed guys are using smaller slaughterhouses and everything where that's not done. It's the big corporate. See, there's only like five companies that process about 90% of the, the meat that's sold in this country. Hmm. So the regulations are made so that, you know, like your, your good old uh, Piggly Wiggly meat counter there can't really grind meat there because all the regulations on how often they got to clean this and do this and do all that, you know. And so uh, uh, most of the, the big packing houses don't even grind meat there. They, they process the animal. They, they, you know, break the animal down into the cuts but then all of those, the bones and the scraps and everything, I've got a buddy that was a truck driver and he would haul the, the uh, he drove a, tr a truck 
and they had the big pallets of all the, the bones and the scrap meat and everything that was on there. And they drove it to a plant, and he dropped that off. And then they loaded him back up with uh, meat hamburger patties uh, for a chain restaurant, a well-known restaurant chain uh, that says uh, fresh, never frozen right there on the box when he just unloaded all the inputs frozen. <laughs> mm. So that kind of stuff has 10% phosphate water. Wow. Do you have any theories if that's good for a human or not? I'd say probably no, <laughs> but you know, even if it is, we ought to have that choice. Let's let them know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, a lot of people they're going to like say you know on the. It kind of it, it's it's kind of funny because people want they go buy a, a, a turkey from the grocery store and then they go they want to brine they feel like they got to brine the turkey man that thing is already taking on as much salt water as it can mm. take on you know uh, whereas like say a wild turkey or something a person would brine that anyway. So, hmm. it might not be such a bad thing, but you know, I don't know. I, I, I like tell. transparency. Me too. Regardless, I, I lean towards that, and I would like like the meat to be transparent in the sense that there's literally not extra liquid added to it. Because right. when I look at some of those turkeys, it's especially around Thanksgiving, and all of a sudden right. they have a whole crate of these fat ass turkeys. I'm like, how did that turkey even walk or right. fly? Much like they compared don't. to the turkeys I've seen, they, they just stand right there. <laughs> they stand right there, and everything's brought to them. And then it, you have to limit the feed intake because they grow so fast. The, the legs just can't keep up with them. Wow. Um, all right. So my, I think we're coming close to an hour here. Totally thankful for all this. Um, why, what, what do you think all this USDA regulations, non-transparency has to do with, for instance, I saw a nice poster the other day, a nice yeah. thing about talking about how liver is the most nutrient-dense foods someone can eat. They were making yeah. an argument for that. And they put, like, on the side, cow, chicken, goat, and I think, wait, cow, chicken, goat, and maybe sheep, one other. Maybe sheep. maybe sheep. That's the ones they mentioned. Yeah. I'm like, why, yeah. why don't they? Why, what about bison? What about elk? Right. What about deer? Well, the US, what about water buffalo? The like, USDA was chartered in 1977 to inspect all meat slaughtered for human consumption. All live, excuse me, all livestock. Slaughtered for human consumption. What year was that, by the way? I just 1977, okay. if I remember correctly. I was just a young buck then, but it seems like I read that somewhere. And so uh, uh, that seems pretty straightforward. You know, if I show up and clear me out a little spot here and build a fence and add animals, it looks like I got livestock. Um, if I ran it off when I got here, then it was probably wildlife. But the government needed to define livestock. The special interest group says we've got to define that. And so the federal government said livestock uh, in the U.S. are defined as cattle, pigs, goats, sheep, and horses. Now they've kind of gotten soft on horses because they realize, well, if horses are livestock, then we can't charge sales tax on horse feed. So they'd rather have the sales tax on horse feed. So they kind of said, oh, well, they're not livestock. Plus, people don't want, a lot of folks don't want people eating horses. So, hey, that's only fair anyway. Let them pay the sales tax. But I guess if the USDA had been here when uh, Nora and baby Jesus were out there building that ark, you know, and they could have said, well, hey, man, y'all don't need to build such a big-ass boat. Said, you know, just a little John boat because really we just need two of those five animals right there. You know, we don't need all this other stuff that's not fit for humans, you know. And so basically what that boils down to is that 
I, if I show up at the packing house with a cow to be processed, I pay that packing house owner $100 a head to slaughter that animal, and then a dollar a pound based on the hanging weight of that carcass to break that carcass down and package it up into individual cuts. My tax dollars have already paid that USDA guy to be there. And so when my beef comes out the back, he can hit it with that stamp, safe to eat, we're good to go, carried across state lines, just about anywhere across the world with a USDA stamp on it. If I show up with a water buffalo, they pull the clipboard out, they go, well, let's see, that's not a cow, that's not a pig, that's not a sheep. What did you say this thing was? And I'm like, well, that's a water buffalo. <laughs> and so they thumb through the clipboard on the back page back there, there's a, a, a list, but instead of a list that says livestock with five animals, it says alternative livestock with a little bit longer list. And so they say, oh, well, they're alternative livestock. The problem is here that uh, we've only been paid to inspect livestock, not alternative livestock. But if you'll make an appointment, we'll inspect them for you voluntarily, which is, I think, kind of ironic to call it voluntary inspection. But uh, I have to pay the USDA inspector a second time, uh, $58 an hour directly from the farm coffers to stand there and inspect that water buffalo while it's being processed because it's not a cow, because I'm operating outside of commodity agriculture. So my uh, main bison supplier of liver, who's 100% grass-fed, grass-finished supplier, he does the USDA voluntary inspection. Yeah. So he's paying an upcharge for right. that voluntary inspection. Right. Wow, yeah. interesting. Yeah. That's that definitely makes. I mean, I guess as yeah. usual, if I really want to understand the truth of a dynamic political cluster fudge, then I should probably follow the money. People are like cows; they're a lot easier to manage if we keep them all hemmed up in groups. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And then bison are definitely are, are they a different classification than buffalo? What well, you mentioned that last time, I was like, well, uh, the bison actually they they can fall under. Uh, uh, they f can fall into the same uh, gray area as the alpaca and llama. We have uh, uh, the alpaca and llama, which, are, as we mentioned earlier, are two species that were created by man. There is no such thing as a wild llama or wild alpaca. Uh, they're not listed as livestock or alternative livestock. And so uh, the USDA says they fall under the jurisdiction of the FDA. The FDA agrees, but they say we have no uh, inspection protocol or street inspectors. So we'll have the USDA look at it, and we'll go by what they say. And then the USDA says, oh, we can't look at that. I already told you. They're not livestock or alternative livestock. So uh, that meat is sold uh, without inspection. But technically, I guess there's no uh, regulation on because they're not livestock. This is also fascinating. Um, <laughs> one thing I will say, just on my personal, I just want to maybe wrap it up with this, my personal project here with the Tribe Vitamins. Um, it's pretty interesting because I've gotten the same thing. Like I call the USDA and they're like, oh, you need to talk to the FDA. <laughs> I call the right. FDA and they're like, are you sure you don't need to talk to the USDA about this? And I'm like, mm -hmm. what in the world is going on with yeah. this? Why? And I guess they've just fit those categories. They're USDA inspected animals. And I, I'm, I'm going to see how we can make the most of this loophole in the sense of providing 
dietary supplements from these animals that are not normal, that don't fit into the right. USDA classification, that they, they don't necessarily need fences to survive. What do you think about that? How would these animals do out in the wild? I, I mean, my understanding, a bison herd does pretty well. Um, bison herd would take care of themselves. How do these things uh, do? The alpacas and llamas, are they are highly susceptible to predation. Uh, domestic dogs would be an issue with them uh, in a suburban area like this. Uh, coyotes can be, but they actually, uh, uh, you know, have, have these, these animals live with coyotes here. We don't really have any coyote problems. And, and we select for good, good mothering instinct, you know, and that leads to an aggression towards predators and that type of thing also. So we do select for that you know, in these animals because it is uh, the mother's job to raise that baby. But uh, there's a lot of dogs out there. The buffaloes, the, the water buffaloes, they'd be fine. They'd be fine. Yeah. How, how do you think they would be compared to a cow? Like how would a cow Much survive? Better. Okay. <laughs> Much better. Well, that, that's been, what I find interesting. They've been walking, you know, they've been walking uh, 5,000 years. They've been standing in the mud. And so they have, they've developed a genetic resistance to parasites. Hmm. So when I sent this herd out to Colorado to join the dairy out there, um, we had some vets over from the local land-grant college to uh, do the health papers on them uh, to travel across the state lines. And uh, one of them was mentioning uh, how great the day was going, how smooth it was and everything. I said, yeah, it, it is going pretty good, you know, especially considering some of these animals have never been through a shoot in their life. And I pointed out to one girl, I said, that girl right there, uh, she's 20 years old and she hadn't been through a, a working shoot since uh, she was like six months old and got her ear tagged. And he looked at me and goes, well, what do you, how do you worm them then? I was like, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, how do you deworm them? And I says, man, they don't need deworm. Hmm. You know? And, and then so uh, we, the next one came through the chute. The next one, then he looked at the other bed over there and says, hey, man, I've been thinking about what Mr. Carroll said. He said, let's, when we palpate these next three or four cows, let's pull some fecals on them and send them in. And, and let's see, let's check the parasite. Mode. And so uh, they did. One of the tests that we had to do on them was a, uh, uh, a TB test. We had to run these animals when they went through the chute. We have to raise their tail head, and you give them an injection up under the tail head, and it's got to be checked exactly three days later to see if there's any reaction to that site. And so if there is, then uh, they would suspect uh, TB, tuberculosis there. They don't really get tuberculosis, but, hey, it's easier to just have the test done and, and go on with it. And so uh, three days later, they were back. We finished working everybody. And I said, hey, Doc, uh, did you ever hear about uh, getting anything back on the, the, the fecals that we did on the buffaloes? He said, I hadn't heard yet. And as we were talking, his phone beeped. And he picked it up and uh, looked at it. And it was the fecal report. And he just turned around and showed it to me. And it said, Carroll Farms, uh, Asiatic water buffalo. buffalo. Said, zero eggs found. And it just it couldn't believe. Because zero eggs in a fecal sample, it's not something we strive for. We know that a healthy animal, just like us, more than likely, has parasite eggs. You know, we pass parasite eggs. We have parasites in our system, but we're a healthy animal. That's no threat. It's only when we're under stress of some form or another that those parasites can really flourish and take advantage of us. But uh, so we, we look for safe loads, tolerable loads we don't try to ever have a clean system because if we do have to use chemicals to kill parasites we're killing the other things too 
including earthworms and the dung beetles that were put there by nature to take those parasite eggs below ground away from us. Mm-hmm. See, so there's a the balance there. And so uh, we were just really just blown away that, that uh, a 20-year-old animal would have uh, zero parasites found in her body. But I guess you stand in the mud for five or 6,000 years, and that's what you get. Yeah, I, the funny thing is, I, one of the greatest places, I've hosted like 50 retreats at this point in my life, different health retreats in different places. They're pretty unique, one being a permaculture resort in uh, Costa Rica at the base of Arenal Volcano. Nice. And the son there, um, I think I even remember his name, Jeremy Sothin, Sothin, Juan, Juan who runs the property. His son allegedly took a trip through the gnarliest river in Costa Rica, like one of the gnarliest, longest crocodile-infested rivers on two water buffalo. Huh. He nice. rode them. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you believe that. <laughs> when I was hearing oh, absolutely. I, don't, I don't know if I believe that. Absolutely. I was like, what are you talking about? Uh, they, they're great. They're, they're very trusty friends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, they allegedly they kept him away from the crocodiles. It was like it sounded like some sort of Indiana Jones like fairy tale, but I'm pretty certain he was telling me the truth. And he, yeah. he, we even went to go look for him one day. He, they were like roaming up there, like in this huge plot of land, and we couldn't find him. He's like, he, he, he made it sound like you might want to not get too close. Um, yeah. They don't know you, but they're out here somewhere. And yeah, he, they can live 30 or 40 years. They know who their family is. You know, they're very suspicious of strangers. Wow. You know, strange things and, uh, and very loyal. Uh, to their friends and family. Well, what a story. And I know you, it sounds like you have definitely a belief about eating, consuming healthy food. What do you think about consuming uh, buffalo and bison and alpaca and llama and elk and deer uh, versus just the four that the USDA recommends? We get asked all the time, you know, why buffalo? And I'm like, why beef? Why beef every day? You know, I mean, we owe it to ourselves to provide ourselves as broad a nutritional profile as we can, and really to keep it as clean as we can. Uh, you know, our health is really our responsibility. It doesn't really matter how good our doctor is. <laughs> you know, it's still our responsibility. Well, in that case, I'm looking forward to uh, peeing on this land. You mentioned the different poops. What do you think about the different poops um, of oh, yeah. bison versus? I've heard yeah. great things about well, bison poop. Well, for the uh, the sheep are like uh, uh, little turd conveyors. They uh, they just keep walking on four legs, and you know their heads down, and the grass it just goes in that one end, and then it just comes rolling out and balls in the back, and it seems like it just never ever <laughs> stops. And so you know we we manage our sheep. And we only put them on very small little bits of land at a time, and we're moving them every one to two days, three days at the most, which is a whole other story. But uh, that's one of the things we look for is that a uniform uh, distribution of manure across there, uh, which brings a lot of minerals, and then also the urine, which brings the most of the nitrogen back to the soil. About 80% of what went into that animal comes right back out. The alpacas and the llamas have communal dung piles. They all go to the go out of their way uh, to go to the bathroom in the same place. Mm. And so in, in the size pin, uh, paddock that we're looking at right there, they may have two or three or four spots, and every one of those animals, if they have to go to the bathroom, will go to one of those spots. And so we like running the alpacas and the llamas with our sheep. So while the sheep are uniformly fertilizing and manicuring uh, the paddock that they're in, the llamas and the alpacas uh, instantly pick out uh, 
the place that needs the most love, you know, the place that needs the most care, that needs the most nutrients, uh, the place that has the worst grass, hmm. and that's where they go to the bathroom, you know. And so when we come through, whether it's six months later or a year later or two years later, that's the greenest grass in the pasture. Mm-hmm. So that they know more about uh, building soil than I do. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty. That's one of the things I've heard about the argument of why bison might be better for beef for our lands is they're bigger, their hooves are sharper, and their poop is better. Like it produces a buffalo grass with deeper roots or something compared to yeah, the cow. Yeah, I would, I, would, I would imagine that the bison, because of their diet, is uh, uh, very, much to the, very similar to the water buffalo. A lot of coarser forages and uh, mature forages and stuff like that. And just forages, period. Grass has a lot of fiber. To make a living on grass, you've got to eat a lot. That's why all these rumen animals have that big gut like that. You know, a lot of the research and the comparisons that we, we see, uh, we're comparing them to, whenever we're comparing them to cattle, typically we're comparing them to the grain-fed cattle. And so uh, the grain-fed cow manure uh, doesn't have that same fiber hmm. like that. Yeah, I heard it's something. That, have you heard of white oak pastures in Georgia? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I, I've yeah, not I'm been there. Yeah, we'll yeah. Yeah, you should go. Uh, yeah. yeah, I want to go. I, I've yeah. heard the story. They have the soil of their, they have like a jar of their soil on the countertop, and then they have a jar of the neighbor's soil on the countertop, yeah. and like one looks like wet coffee, like wet right. coffee grinds, and the other one looks like red dirt that's like yeah. useless. Yeah. And he's there, and I'm like, wow, that does say a lot. What a, yeah, what a image and metaphor. Well, hey, man, look at that one hour, 11 minutes. I'm ready to go right get some on, buffalo man. milk. Cool, let's do it. <laughs> All right, thank you so much. <laughs> right. Thanks for breaking thank normal. You. Y'all keep doing it. Peace in.